Early in, in 1848, a man named James Marshall, he was working in the American River to build uh, a water-powered sawmill. But while working in the water, Marshall saw something that he said made his heart thump. What he saw was a lot of flakes, what he was pretty sure was gold in the American River. The mill he was working on was Sutter's Mill, near what uh, would later become uh, Sacramento, California. Over the next two years, hundreds of thousands of people rushed to California, hoping to strike it rich on the gold that was there. And the gold was absolutely there. Miners extracted something like 800,000 pounds of gold over the next couple of years in California. But the life of the average gold miner did not pan out, see what I did there, the way he hoped it would when he sold everything back east and headed out west. Uh, a good number of them died on the trip out there. Trust me, I know I played a lot of Oregon Trail on the Apple IIe. Back in the day, I can't tell you the number of times the dysentery got me. Uh, but even those that made it out there saw lots of hard work for very little or for nothing. Most of the men that went out there saw a lot of sand and a lot of water and little else flow through their pans and sluice boxes and the other contraptions they used. Well, have you ever purposed to read through the entire Bible? Do you ever tr at least try to do that? You ever get to a point in reading the Bible where you feel like uh, one of those miners, where you feel like you're doing a lot of sifting and a lot of digging, but you're not exactly swimming in the gold nuggets? Yeah, David said, it's called Leviticus. Uh, you will, you'll get there. Um, well, my advice would be to keep digging, keep reading. One, one advantage we have over the California gold miners is when this is what we are mining through, we all get to dig in the same vein and we know there's gold in there. We know it's there. But there are some passages for example, today's passage that seem a lot more like a box of sand than any kind of huge strike. Um, one of my seminary professors used to say, all scripture is equally inspired, but they don't equally preach. And what he, what he meant was, it's easier to find gold in some passages than others. So today, uh, because we are committed here, I am committed, and we as a corporate body, we are committed to studying books of the Bible, verse by verse, chapter by chapter, and we don't skip anything. And so today, let's, uh, let's dig in a little bit, and we're, we may have to shake a little extra, but we'll see if we can't find something to sink our teeth into, so to speak, as another gold-digging pun goes. Before we start, just by way of reminder, here's where we're at in the book of 2 Samuel. We're in the closing section of this book. The last four chapters 
they, they're not chronological. They don't follow chronologically what came before. They're tagged on at the end. What we're going to read today fits in chronologically around chapter 8 of 2 Samuel. And we know that because in chapter 8, King David and his army finally vanquished and defeated for good the Philistines. They never show up as enemies of Israel ever again in Israel's history, but they show up again today uh, because what we read about today happened chronologically back then. These last four chapters are arranged. They're, they're thematic. They're not chronological. And uh, so that's where we will be. We're going to read 2 Samuel chapter 21, beginning in verse 15. The first three verses outline a story of a time when David was at war and King David nearly met his untimely demise. Let's read that first. Now, when the Philistines were at war again with Israel, David went down and his servants with him. And as they fought against the Philistines, David became weary. Then Ishbi Binab, who was among the descendants either of the giant or um, the descendants of, uh, um, of Rahab, I believe is how you say that. I, sh- I had that on the screen. I forgot I, I changed that and got it off. But uh, Rapha, Rapha, the descendants of Rapha, your Bible might say. More on that in a minute. So they're fighting against the descendants of the giant or the descendants of Rapha. And the, the, the weight, uh, and I'm going to start this whole thing over. <laughs> We're going to pretend none of this ever happened. Now, when the Philistines were at war again with Israel, David went down with his servants with him. And as they fought against the Philistines, David became weary. Then Ishbi Binab, who was among the descendants of the giant, the weight of whose spear was 300 shekels of bronze in weight, was girded with a new sword, and he intended to kill David. But Abishai, the son of Zariah, helped him and struck the Philistine and killed him. Then the men of David swore to him, saying, You shall not go out again with us to battle, so that you do not extinguish the lamp of Israel. All right, there are, in this passage, there are a few translational issues I'm going to show you this morning, uh, some language problems. Um, and there are two in these first three verses. The first one shows up right here in what I stumbled over a second ago where we're told when they went down, they, the, the Israelites fought against either the descendants of the giant. Some of our Bibles might just go with what the Hebrew says literally, which is the sons of Rapha or Repha. The, the Rephaim or Raphaim, by the way, your first Hebrew lesson comes right here. The, uh, the, the way to make a word plural in Hebrew is to add the suffix im. Like we had an S. I have one hand. I have two hands. If we were in Hebrew, it would be hand or two hand im. So anytime you read something that ends in im, it just means more than one. So if your translation says refaim, and what I'll show you in a minute, or refaites, it's the same thing. Just an English, an Anglicanized way of saying refaim. So these descendants of very big people called the Rephaim were part of who the Israelites were fighting against when they fought the Philistines. These Rephaim, Raphaim, 
are the descendants of a very ancient people group that first show up in the Bible in the book of Genesis when Abraham is running around Canaan, Palestine. I'll show you that in Genesis 15. So this is 900-ish years before today's passage. God promises Abraham, and that day the Lord made a covenant with Abraham. To your descendants I give this land. From the river of Egypt to the great river, the Euphrates River, the land of the Kenites, the Kenizzites, the Cadmonites, the Hittites, the Perizzites, the Rephaites, the Amorites, the Canaanites, the Gergesites, the Jebusites, the Stalagtites, Stalagmites, and the Alrights. The, I only made up three of those. The, but what I want to show you, this Rephaites, even though your Bible might have an A here, Hebrew didn't have vowels. Till a long time later. This is the people group that God promised Abraham's descendants would defeat. And we read about some of that today. So there's this, this people group that maybe used to be separate, but have now become swallowed up by the Philistines. And some of them are of very large stature. They remind me of, when I was a kid, Manute Bull was in the NBA. Anybody remember Manute Bull? His son is now in the NBA. Manute Bull was seven feet six inches tall. His son plays in the NBA now. He's like seven feet five inches tall. And I remember Manute was not the biggest guy in his family. Their whole tribe, called the Dunka tribe in Africa, was filled with these massively tall people. Um, but the story goes, as they go fight the Philistines that day, in the hand-to-hand combat of that day, David gets worn out. And there is this one descendant of the giant or descendant of Rapha. Um, some of our Bibles just say, they just call them giants because we know what that means. This guy, Ishbibinab. He recognizes David over there. That's King David. And he recognizes he's all pooped out. He's worn out. So he sets his sight on King David and he's going to go kill the king of Israel. And that brings us to our next translational issue. He grabs in his hand, your Bible might call it a spear. It might call it a spearhead. It might call it a sword. One translation even says a new weapon. And here's why. Um, The word for the weapon he grabs is only used here. I can't tell you what this thing was because we're we're not shown it anywhere else that I know of in ancient literature. And the word for what he picks up is actually the word Cain, like Cain and Abel. Now, Cain was the world's first what? What? He was the world's first murderer. So whatever this weapon was, this guy grabs, I think the Hebrews, the Israelites, they nicknamed it the Cain, the murderer. And so he grabs his murderer in his hand and he heads for David. That does nothing for the application of this story, but it was too cool for me to not share with you when I learned that last week or two weeks ago when I studied this. So here comes... Ishbi Binab, he zeroed in on exhausted David, and just before he kills David, one of David's nephews and friends, Abishai, a man whom we've we've met many times in this book, saves the day, takes out this, this huge dude holding his murderous weapon, saves David, and thus 
Israel. And then the result of that is a new policy David's men demand of him. No more hand-to-hand combat for you, O king. Maybe by this point in David's life, he has lost his fastball, so to speak. Uh, this, is, this is David's men sort of taking the keys away from, from David. You're not coming out anymore. You are too important to our hopes and to the nation. That's the first half of the passage. Let's go on. We'll read the second half, beginning in verse 18. Now, it came about after this that there was war again with the Philistines at Gob. Then Sibekai, uh, the Hushathites, struck down Saf, who was among the descendants of the giant, or Rapha. Verse 19, there was war with the Philistines again at Gob, and Elhanan, the son of Jair, or Agim, the Bethlehemite, killed Goliath, the Gittite, the shaft of whose spear was like a weaver's beam. There was war at Gath again, where there was a man of great stature who had six fingers on each hand and six toes on each foot, 24 in number in case you're keeping track as we count. Uh, and he also had been born to the giant. He was a descendant of Rapha. When he defied Israel, Jonathan, the son of Shammai, David's brother, struck him down. These four were born to the giant or to the Rapha in Gath. And they fell by the hand of David and by the hand of his servants. Okay. One reason that section is tacked on to the end of this book is this serves as like the war memorial for the Philistine wars for the nation of Israel. These books, First and Second Samuel, they're history books. They're more than that, but they're history books. You know how we can go to Washington, D.C., and we might visit the Vietnam Memorial the Korean War Memorial, World War II Memorial. You can go to the World War I Memorial, but you will have to go to the greatest city on earth, Kansas City, to find the World War I Memorial, because that's where it is. Um, go Chiefs. And that's, that's what this is. This is like the war memorial to the Philistine Wars. The Philistines have been Israel's major nemesis for hundreds of years, when they're finally vanquished, they're like, man, we should memorialize some of the men who did the most or whatever. And this is like the Hall of Fame for those wars. I don't think it's imperative that we dig through each of these entries. I'm not sure there's a lot of gold in there for us, um, except uh, this one guy that's got six digits on the end of each arm, which is pretty cool. Um, Reminds me of um, Antonio Alfonseca was a relief pitcher for the Phillies. He had this. He had six fingers on each hand, six toes uh, on each foot, but uh, also not important. But there is one entry in here we had better deal with. Because as we read through this, you might have had a question about verse 19. Because verse 19 says, there was war with the Philistines again at Gob, and Elhanan, the son of Jair or Agim, the Bethlehemite, is the guy who killed Goliath, the shaft of whose spear was as big as a weaver's beam. Anybody have a question to ask about that? Because I am pretty sure in 1 Samuel, we read the story of Goliath's death, and I'm almost positive the man who killed him was named David. So what gives here? 
Some people just say, well, there must have been more than one Goliath. I'll tell you, that doesn't solve our problem. I'll show you in a minute. Some people say Elhanan must have been a different name. David must have, had a, a, he must have been named Elhanan when he was younger and he got a different name later. Still doesn't solve our problem. I'll show you in a minute. Because if we turn to the book of 1 Chronicles, and you don't have to turn there, I'll show you in a sec. We read, the books of Chronicles are other history books. They cover the same history we've been reading. And then the Chronicler's entry right here, it reads this way. 1 Chronicles 20 verse 5 says this, And there was war with the Philistines again, and Elhanan the son of Jair killed Lami, the brother of Goliath the Gittite, the shaft of whose spear was like a weaver's beam. That is why if you brought your own Bible here this morning and you're reading it right now, your Bible might put the brother of Goliath up here in the book of 2 Samuel to try to clear up the problem. But I'll shoot you straight. If you brought a Hebrew Bible with you this morning, which I'd be very impressed if you're out there uh, reading one, but if you have your copy of the uh, of the Hebrew scriptures, the word brother is not in 2 Samuel 21, 19. So what do we, this is, there is a contradiction between this verse of the Bible and this verse of the Bible. I, there's, a, there's a very reasonable explanation and I want to use it to teach you a little bit about the trans, transmission of the scriptures and our trust in those. This is actually one of the most difficult uh, textual issues in our Bibles. Here's why I think it happened. I've got a couple of Hebrew words here. Now, this is not a great font for Hebrew. I could not get the Hebrew to copy into this program well, but it's, it's good enough. It's good enough. Uh, this right here is the word et. It's, it doesn't ever get translated. It's a marker. It goes before another Hebrew word to mark it in the accusative case. It's usually it means this following word is the direct object of the sentence. It receives the, the action. Down here, this is the word ach. It's got that really nice Hebrew sound. Ach. The only difference originally, you see those two dots right there and that line right there? Those are vowels in Hebrew. And originally, they didn't have vowels, but I couldn't get rid of them in this. Uh, in, in this. The only difference between this word et and this word ach is on this letter right here, there's a little foot, a little turn, a little tail. Do you see that? In this one, there, there's not one. That's what makes it a different letter. Uh, in this font, it looks like there's something extra up here, but those should be identical. I just couldn't get them copied across correctly. What that little foot is called, that's a tittle. So if you, in the Gospels where Jesus said, not one yod or tittle will pass away from the law before it's all fulfilled, that's what he was talking about. Just the smallest little part of a Hebrew letter. So here's what I think happened that led to our uh, problem. After 2 Samuel was written, I think this is what happened. I think this guy, Elhanan, killed Goliath's brother by the name of Lami. Because we have another problem too. 
Uh, Goliath also wasn't killed uh, at Gob, in a different place than the first Samuel story. So here's what happened. After the book of 2 Samuel was written, and someone started to copy it because they couldn't run Xerox copies, right? They didn't have copy machines. I think one of the earliest people to copy, they, they missed a tittle. Or excuse me, they added a tittle that shouldn't have been there, thus erasing the word brother from the text. Now, so you're telling me, Pastor Matt, there's a mistake in our Bibles. Put your stones down, but I'm going to say, yeah, I think I am. And I want to explain that just a bit. And about what we believe about the inerrancy and inspiration of our Bibles. Um, and why you can still trust your, your Bible, even though there's a problem like this. If you got on our website and looked up our statements of faith, what this corporate body believes as its core uh, beliefs, you would read this on our statement about the Bible. This is just copy and pasted right off of that. We believe the Bible, consisting of both the Old and the New Testament scriptures in their entirety, is the only divinely inspired, inerrant, objectively true, and authoritative written word of God, and the only infallible rule of faith and practice. We'll stop right there for one second. Here's what that means. We believe that, that the Bible, Old and New Testament, all of it, it's inspired by God, which means what wound up being written and recorded in this book is exactly what God wanted to be recorded and written in this book. God is the ultimate source. And that it is inerrant means it's perfect. We'll go on to the underlying part that I just underlined for this morning. It's not underlined on our website. The divine inspiration of Scripture extends to each word of the original manuscripts, but not to the various copies or translations of Scripture. Here's what that means. Whatever God wanted that original author of 2 Samuel to write was absolutely perfect. When whoever copied that later and left, maybe left off a tittle, if that's what happened, um, there becomes an error there. We believe that it was perfect originally. And there are a few places in the Bible where it's hard to tell what the original author wrote down. But what I just showed you is one of the most difficult, the most troubling for the, for the scholar. And it's really not that hard to figure out what happened. Okay? You can trust that what you read when you read your Bible, whatever translation you pick up, is what God intended. You know what most of the rest of the problems, textual problems look like? You read a place in the New Testament and someone will, will call Jesus the Lord Jesus Christ. And if you look at some other uh, copies, instead of Lord Jesus Christ, he'll be called just Jesus Christ instead of Lord Jesus Christ. Do you still know who he's talking about? Yeah, it doesn't change. None of them change the meaning of a book. 
None of them change. None of them should uh, make us doubt whether or not we can believe that what we're reading came from the original. If you can't believe the, the Bible, you can't believe any text written before about 1600. Because the Bible has fewer issues, way fewer issues like this than Shakespeare, Plato, Socrates, any other ancient text or even old text you might want to pick up. So that's, that's what we mean when we say the divine inspiration of Scripture extends to each word of the original manuscripts. And there's a couple of places where you kind of have to scratch your head and say, Re- not real sure what happened. Here's what I know. David killed Goliath. <laughs> okay, And uh, I tend to go with this one right here. And if this were a place where we just get so, uh, so hung up, we just can't tell, it will not change any foundational piece of our faith. And in no translation is someone trying to hide something from you or take something away. You can turn to some other book and find what I think is the real, the real story. Okay. That's the whole passage. What can we possibly learn? Are there any gold nuggets in here for us? Besides, maybe the first one is you can believe that what you are holding in your lap when you hold the Bible is the inspired and errant word of God, even though there's a, there's a couple of places like this. Here's what I think we learned from this passage, though. First, God keeps his promises, but also requires faithful action. From this passage, we learn God keeps his promises, but he also requires people to do stuff that takes faith, and stuff takes faith when it is scary. Here's how we learn this in this passage. God had promised that the Rephaim were going to be defeated by Abraham's descendants. God promised David earlier in his career that the Philistines would be defeated by Israel, by David. God had obligated himself to bring that about. Now, God could have chosen any means he wanted to bring that about, but in his sovereignty, the means he chose was Israel. You're going to march down that hill. Down the, you're going to march down the mountain and go to war. And it's going to be hard And some of you are going to die. That will still be me, God says, keeping my promise. But I am going to require you to get your hands dirty. And to be scared. God still works that way. There are many amazing promises God has promised us. And God will keep every single one of them. God will save. God will reward. God will restore. God will build his church. But God still has stuff he wants each of us to do. And God still cares if we are obedient to what he has told us to do. God will still keep his promises with or without us. God doesn't need us to get his promises accomplished, but God gives us the great pleasure and privilege of being the means through which he does keep his promises. And that's pretty cool. 
So we see that here. God keeps his promises, but he also requires faithful action that can be scary and difficult and puzzling at times. A second thing I think we learned from this chapter is that Israel's, even though Israel had David, Israel still needed the good king. I've brought this out as a lesson before in this book. I probably will again before the book ends. But David, he's the greatest king and the greatest warrior Israel ever had. And he wasn't good and he wasn't great enough to be all that Israel needed. David is great because he is he's most great because he was the conduit that God chose to deliver the good king through. Here's how we see that David's not enough in this passage. We've seen so far in 2 Samuel, we've seen David, David's weaknesses. We've seen him be weak morally. We've seen him be, uh, have weak like integrity. We've seen him be weak mentally and just make bad decisions. We've seen him be weak emotionally. And today we saw him just be weak physically. He got wore out to the point he couldn't defend himself. That's how, there's a lot of things in David's life that looks like his future descendant, Jesus. But there are some ways he doesn't look like Jesus. And when his son, when his great descendant, Jesus, comes back to reign, there will be no weaknesses. He is, as Psalm 121 says, the one who watches over Israel will, never, will neither sleep nor slumber. He won't need to take little naps. And he won't need to go to bed at night to recharge because he will have no even physical weakness. David, David is a great man. We overuse that word, but David was a great man. But the one who would come after him, Jesus, is greater. David knew that too. Jesus has zero weakness. He is infallible indefatigable, invincible. David was none of those things. He was a fallible servant of the later Messiah, just as we are. And because that's true, our next lesson is also true, and that's this. We need each other. This, this story teaches us that. David's humanity, his fallibility, meant David needed other people. So far in the books of Samuel, I made a little list here. This is who I came up with. David has needed the prophet Samuel, Jonathan, Abigail, Nathan, Joab. He needed the spy network that he left in Jerusalem during his son's rebellion. And in today's passage, he needed Abishai in a very real way. If Abishai doesn't show up when he shows up, that giant's going to kill David. Now see if this makes sense. If David, the greatest king and the greatest warrior in all of Scripture, not named Jesus, if, if David needed other people because of his weaknesses, do you think that's still true about you and me? It absolutely is. We have weaknesses. That's part of what makes us need 
one another. We have blind spots. We have weaknesses. We have ways our enemy goes to work against us. We need to be surrounded. We need to invite into our lives people that will help us be on the lookout for our weaknesses, to help shore us up where we might fail. Do you, do you invite that into your life? It's easy to answer that with a yes while we're all safe in here in church. I know you agree with me when I say we need each other, but how about this? How do we respond when someone else actually points out one of our weaknesses? How do we respond when, when someone comes to us and points a finger at us or puts an arm around us and says, hey man, here's what I see. Listen, we need each other because of our weaknesses. And the way to respond is not convince them I actually don't have any. David needed others. We do too. And the last thing I think this passage teaches us is that God has a long history of miraculously saving the one who holds all hope. Here's what I mean by that. In this story, God, has, God had promised David, basically, I'm going to deliver the Messiah through you. But then... David almost gets killed. So in a very real sense, the hope of Israel and the hope of the world is held in David. And this, this giant with his murderous cane in his hand is, 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 is zeroing in on David. And right at the, at the last moment, he's rescued and, and hope is still alive. That is so not the only time that happens in the Bible. God has the habit of doing this. In, in the book of Genesis, Abraham is told, I'm going to bless, by God, I'm going to bless the whole earth, all the families of the earth through you. That's a promise of the Messiah, of Christ. And then God promises, it's going to be a son you have with Sarah, your wife. And they're way too old to have kids. And as soon as Isaac is born, God tells Abraham, now take him up Mount Moriah and I want you to sacrifice him. The son that holds the hope of all the world. And Abraham's like, that doesn't seem like a very good idea. But if it's what you want, it's what I'll do. And so he marches up there and he's just ready to kill the son of the promise. The hopes of the world are held in this kid. And at the last second, God goes, whoa, 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 Abraham, Abraham. Don't do that. Here's a ram as a substitute. Okay? Last moment, he saves the one who holds all hope. We could turn the page to the next book of the Bible. Moses. Moses is the one who's going to save his people from their bondage. And Pharaoh in Egypt orders all of the, 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 the male babies be executed, be killed. And Moses is miraculously saved. He's even, he's even caught by Pharaoh's family but he's miraculously saved because God has a long history. He can do whatever he wants because he's God. But for some reason, he likes to say, here's where hope is and then take his people to the point where it seems like hope is about to die and then he rescues us. 
I think maybe that is so that we can see our, our real hope. All of that points to Jesus Christ. Jesus himself, when he was young, he was also saved from a plot from a ruler to kill all the male babies. But that's not when his life looked the most bleak. Because at the end of his life, Jesus wasn't saved you know, from being executed. He was saved after he was executed. Right? He, was, he was brutally beaten and, and, and murdered. And if he's the hope of the world, he's the Christ, he's the king, nothing could have looked more bleak than that. And God steps in and saves him after he is executed, the resurrection. I think we're supposed to learn something from that in our lives. God has a well-established pattern of making it seem like maybe all hope is lost and rescuing hope when it seems hopeless. So when you or I, when it's our turn to actually suffer, when things get really super dark, when things get awfully painful and lonely and scary and whatever, that part of us that is tempted to think God isn't real or God doesn't care, we should look back through like stories today and see, wait a minute, God has a long history of letting his loved ones get to the point where it seems like hope is lost when hope was secure the whole time. He just makes us, allows us to walk through very painful situations. Then we can look back later, even if it's on the other side of the grave and say, wait, he was with me that whole time. It can give us confidence while we're going through it that hope is not lost because God has a habit of letting his people get to the point where it seems like it is, but he rescues always. That's, that's the God this passage teaches us about. Let's pray, and we'll close our time together. Our Father, we thank you for your word. Thank you that uh, when we don't skip any, we can find some, some gold even in um, difficult passages. God, I pray that you would help us to mine your word. And I thank you for the hope that it gives. Thank you for the reminder that if David needed other people, we need one another because we have weaknesses, shortcomings, blind spots. Help us to invite into our lives um, faithful Abishai's who might not slay giants, but they might help us see where we are being attacked and where we are weak. And God, thank you that you will keep all your promises even when you lead us through situations where it seems like hope is lost. It is not. If you allowed your one and only son to die the death we deserved and then rescued him on the other side of death, we know that your promises are secure. You can rescue when hope seems lost, and you will. Give us the faith and the strength to walk with you through what feels hopeless. We love you, Lord, in Jesus' name. Amen. 
Stand up and let's finish our time this morning.